All right, well, we're continuing in our series on the Gospel of John today. We're going to be in John chapter 9. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, you can. We're only going to be putting two or three verses on the screen today, and that'll be a little deeper into the message. But I am going to be working through the ninth chapter of John, so if you want to hold your place there and you can reference uh, the verses that I uh, uh, you know, get to as I get to them. Um, For those of you who are visiting with us, what we're doing in this series is we're looking at the words of Jesus throughout the Gospel of John. Those are the words that are indicated in red in uh, most of our Bibles. And we've titled this series simply, Jesus uh, Speaks. Uh, So the verses that we'll look at in a little more detail here in a few minutes are verses 39 uh, through 41. Uh, The ninth chapter of John, I think, is a pretty fascinating chapter of the Bible, Uh, It it begins with the healing of a man who had been blind from birth, and then it leads into the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, launching an investigation and a debate uh, about the healing of this man. You know, something that you'd think would just make everybody happy caused the Pharisees to launch an investigation. And then after that, we see that the man who had been physically blind comes to faith in Jesus. Not only did he receive physical sight, but he received spiritual sight. And then that leads in to Jesus speaking to the Pharisees about spiritual blindness. So we'll kind of touch on each of these things. And all that happens in the ninth chapter of John is set up by this encounter Jesus had with a blind man that's recorded in the first seven verses of the chapter. So here's what those verses tell us. As he, meaning Jesus, went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with uh, the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Now, there are a number of interesting things in this chapter that really aren't the main focus of the message today, but I thought that we ought to at least uh, briefly touch on. First of all, I want you to notice the disciples' reaction to uh, this man who had been blind from birth. They immediately assumed that either he had sinned or his parents had sinned. Of course, he had been born blind, so, so it really couldn't have been his sin, and I'm not sure if they knew he had been born blind or not. I'm guessing perhaps they didn't know that, but, but the key thing here is that their first reaction to seeing somebody with a disability, to seeing somebody with a, a hardship, a physical challenge, is to assume that somebody had to have sinned. Either this person sinned or his parents sinned. They're assuming that this is some kind of punishment for a wrong that has been done. And Jesus tells them that, that neither of them sinned. Now, now, this obviously doesn't mean that they were sinless. It just means that the blindness was not a result of sin. His blindness was not a punishment for sin. In fact, it was very far from that. It was something much different than that. Jesus said that the man was born blind so that the work of God could be displayed in his life. Much different reason than what the Pharisees were uh, were expecting. And here's one of the things I think we should take from that. 
The business of trying to determine that there is sin in another person's life by the hardships that come to their life is a business that we all would be a lot better off getting out of. Amen. Amen. Those dots rarely, if ever, connect. When difficulty comes to our own lives, certainly we should examine ourselves and say, hey, God, is, are you disciplining me? Is, is, is this your loving discipline? But trying to determine that someone else's difficulty is discipline or judgment, it's really not something that any of us should give our time to. It's much better to see those difficulties that come to people's lives as just part of living in a fallen world. And remember that each difficulty that is presented in each person's life is an opportunity to see the work of God displayed in that person's life. The next thing I find interesting about these first seven verses is how Jesus healed the man. You know, he could have just said, be healed. There are other places in the New Testament where that's exactly what he did. He just said, be healed. I mean, this is the God who spoke the world into existence. He could have done it this way. But instead, what did he do? He spit on the ground. He made some mud with his saliva and the dirt, and he rubbed the mud on the man's eyes. Now, I don't think it's being disrespectful to Jesus to say that that is really gross. I think you agree with me. That is, that is gross. It's really, 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 really gross. And yet that's what Jesus did. Why did he do that? There's no answer for that in the sermon. I do not know why he did that. I, I don't think anybody knows why he did that. But that's how he chose to heal. And then he tells the man, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. So go wash the mud off in the pool of Siloam. Why do you do that? Don't know. But here's what we do know. The man did as Jesus instructed, and he came home with sight. He came home seeing. Friends, none of us have attained a high enough pay grade to be able to question how Jesus chooses to work in our lives or the lives of others. Here's the one response we have to how Jesus works in our lives and the lives of others, obedience. That's our response. Notice that this man doesn't question Jesus. He doesn't object. He simply obeys. And that's our responsibility in our relationship with Jesus is simply to obey. He's doing things all the time that we don't understand. You've probably noticed this. He's doing things all the time. He's choosing to act in ways that we would not choose to do it that way. But our role in the relationship is simple obedience. So this man is physically healed. He receives sight. It's a great day for him. And then later in the chapter, we see that things get even better for him because he receives spiritual sight. He comes to faith in Jesus. Verse 35, verses 35 through 38 record his conversion. Here's what they say. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. The Pharisees had thrown this guy out. We're going to talk about that more in a minute. We're going to backtrack and talk about that. And when he found him, when Jesus found the man, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. And then the man said, Lord, I believe 
and he worshiped him. So this man, blind from birth, has received physical sight. Now he's received something even better, spiritual sight. He turns to Jesus in faith, believes on him. He has come to saving faith in Jesus. Isn't this a wonderful story? Isn't this a fantastic story? It is an amazing work of God. It is cause for celebration, but it's not a cause for celebration for the Pharisees. What should have been a cause for celebration for the Pharisees, somebody receiving physical sight, a blind man being healed, what should have caused rejoicing and praising God for the Pharisees, it's instead a reason to launch an investigation and to begin to debate what happened. Now, this is recorded in verses 13 through 34. And we're not going to read those, but I'm going to touch on some aspects of it. First, the Pharisees are upset that Jesus healed someone on the Sabbath. And so they begin to inquire of the healed man how Jesus did this. Does does the manner in which Jesus healed constitute work? Because work is forbidden on the Sabbath. And they come into a quandary because they don't like that Jesus has healed on the Sabbath. They're pretty sure that that's a violation of the prohibition against work on the Sabbath. And yet, they don't really see how a miracle like this could have been done by a sinner. And so they're like between a rock and a hard place. They want to label him a sinner for violating the Sabbath, but they're not sure how a sinner could do what he did. And so the Pharisees become divided on their their, their view on that. And so they take a different approach. They, they try a different tactic. They begin to question the truthfulness of the entire story. They decide that the way they will discredit this whole thing is to claim that the man wasn't blind to begin with. A, a fake healing doesn't represent the same quandary they were in as to how a, a sinful man could heal someone. If nobody's healed, then it's, in their way of thinking, a sinful man didn't heal anybody. But then the man's parents come forward and they blow this tactic out of the water because they confirm, yes, in fact, he has been blind his entire life. So the Sabbath approach has divided them. Their claim the man wasn't blind has been proven wrong. And so what are they left with? Their investigation has confirmed the story. And affirm Jesus. But that's not what they want. And so they choose to reject Jesus anyway. And so they say to the man in verse 24, give glory to God. I'm told that this phrase means, or that this phrase is a charge to tell the truth. So give glory to God, tell the truth. We know that this man is a sinner. So even though their own investigation should have led them to a different conclusion, they go with what they wanted to be true from the beginning. And so they dismiss Jesus as a sinner. They reject the truth about Jesus, and they want the man healed by Jesus to do the same. 
And I love his answer to them in verse 25. I think he's trying to be kind here, and we'll see in a minute how he, he kind of resorts to a different approach uh, after they continue to, to press him. But I think he's trying to be kind here, and it's a really, really neat answer he gives. He says in verse 25, whether he's a sinner or not, I, I really you know, can't talk to that, but, but here's what I do know. I was blind, and now I see. How cool is that? Well, not that cool, they don't think. They continue to press the man. And when he does not give them the answer that they want, they begin to insult him. And in frustration, they say to the man in verse 29, we know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. And here's how we know the man was kind of being polite with his first response. Because here's what he does now. He absolutely shreds the Pharisees. He destroys them. Here's what he says in uh, verse uh, 30, I think it is. Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. If he's not from God, I can't see. But I can see. What he has done here is he's exposed them by their own beliefs and logic. I don't know about you, I don't believe that Jesus doesn't hear a sinner. I don't believe that. I don't think you believe that. They believed that. By their own beliefs and logic, he has exposed them. They should be accepting Jesus as being from God. But they refuse to do so, even though refusing to do so contradicts their own beliefs about God. Because he exposed them, they dismiss him as a sinner They indignantly say, how dare you lecture us? And they throw him out. You notice that when people are out of an argument, that's how they act. They get indignant. They say things like, how dare you? Well, I never. They're out of an argument. What was objectively cause for celebration and praise of God The Pharisees have instead responded by launching an investigation. The investigation objectively validated Jesus. But because they were not dealing honestly, they rejected Jesus anyway, and then they rejected the man who was healed by Jesus. And so all of this sets up, leads us, to Jesus' statements about spiritual blindness in verses 39 through 41. And you have to keep in mind all that has happened. You have to keep this context in mind as we read verses 39 through 41. You have to remember they've launched an investigation when they should have praised God. You have to remember the investigation validated Jesus, but they rejected him anyway. And you have to remember that they've rejected a man now for simply telling the truth. 
These statements we're going to read are made by Jesus to the man who had been born blind and been healed, as well as to some of the Pharisees who were still hanging around. Verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Verse 40, Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Verse 41, Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Fascinating words. So Jesus speaks about spiritual blindness. He's directing his comments at the Pharisees. So for the next few minutes, I just want to look a little closer at these statements Jesus made about spiritual blindness. First notice he begins, for judgment... I have come into the world. You might be tempted to push back against that statement a little bit. You, you know, because that's a, that's a statement of Jesus that we almost never hear quoted. I'm not sure I've ever heard this verse talked about in a sermon. I don't think I've ever talked about it. I can't remember hearing it talked about uh, from anyone else. Maybe it's just a faulty memory, but I, I don't remember it. You almost never hear this verse. Here's a verse you do hear quoted a lot, John 3, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. But for judgment I have come into the world. Don't hear that one so much. And on the surface, we can convince ourselves that Jesus is contradicting himself. But he's not contradicting himself at all. These two statements are perfectly consistent with each other. You see, the son did not come to condemn the world because the world is already condemned. John 3.18 tells us that. His purpose isn't to condemn. His purpose is to save the world that is already condemned. That's why he came. He came to save. His purpose in coming was not judgment. His purpose was saving. But his presence demands a response. And when people reject him, what they do is they secure for themselves the condemnation that they are already under, the judgment that they are already under. And so he came to save, but his presence requires a response and it results in either faith that leads to salvation or rejection that seals and affirms the judgment that people are already under. For judgment, I have come into the world. And then the second part of verse 39, so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Make no mistake about what he's saying here. He was acknowledging that the man who had been blind from birth physically and also spiritually had just received sight, both physical and spiritual sight, in contrast to the Pharisees who claimed to see clearly but in rejecting Jesus are proving that they are actually spiritually blind. One who couldn't see now can, and those who claim to see perfectly are actually spiritually blind. And so the Pharisees who are still hanging around Jesus, they object to this. Now they ask a question, but make no mistake, it's an objection. What? Are you saying that we're blind? 
And Jesus gives this answer. If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Now, understand what Jesus is not saying. He is not saying that those who are spiritually blind, those who haven't received the truth about Jesus, are free from the guilt of sin. That would contradict the entire Bible. Here's what he is saying. He is saying there is hope for those who are spiritually blind from a place of ignorance. And that the hope that exists for those who are spiritually blind from ignorance is in contrast to the lack of hope that exists for those who are spiritually blind from a place of religious and theological knowledge. In other words, those who have seen the truth those who recognize it is true, but they still reject the truth. The sin of being spiritually blind leaves a person with more hope than the sin of professing to see, yet rejecting truth. And specifically in this context, failing to recognize Jesus as the Son of God. Those who are simply spiritually blind, there's hope for them. But those who have seen the truth and have chosen to reject it, all the while claiming that their rejection is a result of seeing more clearly, that their rejection is actually based on greater theological insight, greater religious truth. For them, Jesus says, their guilt remains. Let me remind you once again, the investigation validated Jesus. The Pharisees rejected him anyway, and they claimed to do so in the service of God. Gary Burge writes, they stand against Jesus from an informed theological standpoint. And because they are self-affirming, claiming that they know, their sin cannot disappear. They rejected Jesus out of ignorance. It would be a different matter, but they reject Jesus out of knowledge, and so their guilt remains. Claim to see, but reject the truth, and so their guilt remains. William MacDonald paraphrases verse 41 this way, if you admit that you're blind and sinful and that you need a savior, then your sins can be forgiven you and you can be saved but you profess that you are in need of nothing. You claim that you are righteous and have no sin. Therefore, there is no forgiveness of sins for you. And here's a key thing that we take from all of this. Jesus can only heal. Jesus can only give spiritual sight to those who know they are sick, to those who know that they are spiritually blind and need sight given them from God. Recognizing that you are spiritually needy, Jesus can work with that. Claiming to have spiritual insight while willfully rejecting the truth about Jesus and truth revealed by Jesus, Jesus cannot and will not work with that. Willful blindness masquerading as sight secures guilt and judgment. 
the Pharisees have provided us with a picture of spiritual blindness, with a real-life example or real-life definition of spiritual blindness. There are a lot of things that we could say in trying to offer a good definition for spiritual blindness. Again, the, the Pharisees have demonstrated it uh, quite well. But I think there are a few simple statements that go a pretty long way in defining spiritual blindness pretty well. And here's a, a very simple statement that I think is, is part of the definition of spiritual blindness. Simply disagreeing with God. Disagreeing with God. On the Pharisees' own terms, Jesus was validated. In this, God was speaking to them. God was revealing Jesus on their own terms to be who Jesus really was. He, he, he was. he was letting them know who Jesus really was. But because God was not saying what they wanted God to say, they chose to just disagree with God about Jesus. Another simple statement that I think is a pretty good definition of spiritual blindness is this, refusing to see, refusing to see what God clearly reveals. Refusing to see what God clearly reveals. Now, Jesus in the New Testament is consistently revealing who he is. And the Pharisees are steadfastly refusing to accept what he reveals. It was never a matter of insufficient evidence. Jesus revealed himself so clearly and so persuasively that an honest person, a person really searching for truth, a truly objective person was persuaded. The Pharisees are without excuse. It's, it's not like they have an argument that Jesus wasn't clear enough with them. They, they understood him very well and we've seen that over and over in this series. I think it was just last week we talked about this. They saw it very clearly. They knew exactly what he was saying. Their own scriptures confirmed Jesus. And they still refused to see him, refused to accept him for who he really was and is. So this is about as good a definition of spiritual blindness as I think we can have. And that is from an informed theological position, one that should objectively lead to faith, the Pharisees reject Jesus. And friends, this is still happening today. Happens all over the place, all the time in churches. Just like with the Pharisees, when a person today has the truth revealed to them, sees it clearly, and rejects it. All the while claiming that their rejection is actually based on superior spiritual insight. That is a spiritually blind person. And that is a person upon whom guilt remains. And their guilt will remain as long as they willfully refuse the truth that God has revealed. My prayer is that this would not be true for any of us in this room today. It's important for us when we read scripture to determine how we apply what happened then and there to our lives today. The truth revealed in the Bible is for all time, but it was spoken in specific context. 
And so there's always some effort that we have to expend to determine how to apply it in our own context. Jesus is clearly revealing the Pharisees as the spiritually blind. They are the ones who from a self-affirmed place of theological insight are rejecting Jesus. And so to apply this to ourselves, to our own time and place, I think we have to ask ourselves, who are the Pharisees of today? In 2015, or as I said in the first service, 2014, who are the people who occupy the self-affirmed place of theological insight while rejecting truth clearly revealed by God? And then when we discover that, the application of the message is helped tremendously. If you ask the culture today who the Pharisees of today are, you are almost certain to receive this answer, Christian conservatives. I don't necessarily mean political conservatives, although often there is a link, but, uh, but theological conservatives. People who really take the Bible seriously, really, really believe it says what it says and that we're obligated to, to live by it. I'll tell you, Christian conservatives are the Pharisees of our day. If you ask many within the church broadly defined who the Pharisees of today are, they will tell you the same as the, the larger culture. They'll, they'll likely say Christian conservatives. And here's the truth. Many Christian conservatives are Pharisees. What we're talking about today isn't the only thing that can be said about Pharisees. You know, Pharisees were very concerned with man-made rules, And they elevated their own preferences and their own man-made rules above the commands of God. And some of us who are so concerned with living right and doing what's right, we try over and over again to put things on people that God never put on people. And when we do that, we're acting like Pharisees. And so it's true. Christian conservatives often are occupying the place of Pharisees. But to reflexively identify uh, Pharisees as Christian conservatives uh, today is actually pretty intellectually lazy. Because a concern with man-made rules isn't the only thing we know about Pharisees. We know about Pharisees what we've learned today. A current day Pharisee is anyone who rejects spiritual truth clearly revealed by God, by Christ, by the Bible, and claims to reject it because they have superior spiritual insight. And here's what this means. Christian conservatives absolutely can occupy the place of current day Pharisee. But it also means that Christian liberals can occupy the place of current day Pharisee. And it even means that non-Christians can be in the position of a current day Pharisee. Current day Pharisee, again, is anyone who sees truth, has truth revealed to them, sees it, but rejects it and claims that their rejection is the result of seeing more clearly than all of the rest of the poor schlubs in the room. And here's the sobering truth. Jesus says to current day Pharisees the very same thing he said to Pharisees of that day. 
But now that you claim to see, your guilt remains. Current day Pharisees, like the Pharisees of old, disagree with God. They elevate their views above God's clearly revealed views. Current day Pharisees refuse to see what God has clearly revealed while claiming they see better than everyone else. And while it may make everybody uncomfortable, I'm going to give you some examples of current day Pharisees. Current day Pharisees are those who have understood, have had it revealed to them that the Bible is the word of God. But now they say that the Bible is simply a conversation partner. Yes, it's a place to find spiritual insight, but it's not infallible. It's not inerrant. It's simply a human construction. The Bible itself says something different than that. The church for 2,000 years has affirmed something very different than that. But these folks have come, come along and said, you know, the Bible is just a, just a human construction. It's, it's not infallible. And they pat themselves on the back as being more spiritually enlightened than all of the poor people who still think the Bible is what the church has said it was for 2,000 years. Current day Pharisee. A current day Pharisee is someone who says many paths lead to God when the Bible says exactly the opposite. The many paths lead to God thing, it's certainly not legalistic, but it certainly is disagreeing with God. It certainly is rejecting truth clearly revealed in Scripture. All paths lead to God is a rejection, make no mistake about this, it is a rejection of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except they come through me. To say all paths lead to God is a clear rejection of Jesus. And you may have noticed the people who say this believe themselves to be spiritually enlightened, to have greater spiritual sight than everybody who is still stuck in this outdated way of thinking that Jesus is the only way to God. And then I feel like I need to speak on a relevant issue here. And many of my colleagues tell me you just shouldn't talk about these things anymore, but I feel like not talking about them has yielded all kind of ground that shouldn't have been yielded to the enemy, so I'm going to talk about them. Current day Pharisees are those who know what the Bible says about human sexuality. Both heterosexuality and homosexuality, they know it, but they reject it. They do as they please, claiming that the Bible doesn't say what it clearly says, and they claim superior spiritual insight for their clear rejection of scripture. They disagree with God. 
They reject what God has objectively, clearly revealed. Current day Pharisees, the list could go on and on. It encompasses Christian conservatives. It encompasses Christian liberals. It encompasses non-Christians. A current day Pharisee is anyone who has truth revealed, rejects it, and claims superior spiritual sight. And friends, we have a choice to make. When God reveals truth to us, will we be like the man who was born blind but didn't stay blind and receive his truth? Or will we be like the Pharisees who reject it? If we respond like the Pharisees, God cannot work with us. Jesus said himself that for such people, their guilt remains. But if we will be like the man who was born blind but didn't stay blind, if we will recognize our neediness, if we will admit that we need spiritual sight given to us by God, that we don't have it on our own, then like the man born blind who was healed by Jesus, we may be cast out by the Pharisees of our day. But we'll have spiritual sight, we'll be welcomed by Christ, and we'll be welcomed by God. Why don't you stand?